The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Now we have the privilege to continue to worship God by studying His Word together. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. For those of you who are visiting, we are going through the book of Acts. We are on 28 chapters. We are now on chapter 20. On the back of your bulletin, if you got one, there's a little outline. Kind of follow that today if that's helpful for you. And we're going to go through the narrative passage of Acts chapter 21 through 16. At this time, if you are in fifth grade on down, you'd like to be a part of Children's Church, uh, you can go ahead and head to the lobby now while you have your Bible lesson. Also, kids, if you turned in some sermon notes and uh, there's some goodies attached to those, several left over from last week, maybe you weren't here. So at the end of the service, you can come up and get your sermon notes and we'll see you all later and see what you learn from Miss Jess and Miss Melinda. The rest of us, we're going to go be looking at Acts chapter 21 through 16. This passage is a little different than most paragraphs we've been looking at in Acts in that you might read through the first 16 verses and think, boy, there's not a whole lot of content there. Mostly it's Paul on the move. He's moving around. He's going from city to city, port to port, place to place. Not much there, not very important, not a lot of content, no doctrine at first blush, but that's not true at all. It's it's actually a very rich passage. The more I studied this week, these 16 verses, the more I felt like I was running out of time. There's no way I can say everything I want to say on these 16 amazing verses in an hour and a half that I have to preach on Sunday. Just kidding. Um, it's going to be a challenge, though, the more I studied, because it's, it's just amazing. Because if you think about it, there's a lot that happened in the life of Paul. And the Spirit of God led Luke, who was an associate of Paul, Paul's physical, his doctor, his medical doctor, a missionary companion. But God led Luke at some point through the Holy Spirit to write down exactly what God wanted his people to know in the book of Acts, and he had to be selective. He had to edit a lot of stuff. Oh, I can't say that. Paul, remember up in uh, Illyricum, up in Albania, what happened? What got? Did you remember all that? And then, and, oh man, we can't can't fit it in there. Albania, Croatia. Did you know about the ministry of Paul in Albania and Croatia? Probably not, because we don't get to know about it. All we get is a little part of a tangential commentary verse in like. Romans, it says when Paul was here in Acts chapter 20, he happened to go up to Illyricum, which is our modern-day Albania, and spent time there ministering, evangelizing, maybe even planted a church there. But So the Spirit of God was directing Luke to be selective. So everything in the book of Acts is there because God wanted it to be there. Everything there is very specifically chosen by Almighty God for us to know, very important. Even these verses where, like in verses 13 to 16, where... You, actually 14 to 16, in just three verses, it mentions eight different locations, most of which Paul and Luke, it says, we sailed here, stopped there, and then we sailed here, and then we stopped there, and then we sailed here. And it's like, why is that in there? We're not told what happened. There's no substantive doctrine. Why Why is that in there? Well, God had a purpose. And so you could ask that question all throughout this passage. Why is that here? Why are the first three verses here? Why is there this weird story in verses 7 through 12 in Troas? 
where Paul, the Bible teacher, they had Sunday morning church and then they had a Vesper service in the evening. They had evening Sunday night church at this church in Troas. And Paul was the preacher. And he preached from probably sundown from 6 in the evening till midnight, a six-hour sermon. Can you imagine? And I get complaints when I go three minutes over. Six-hour sermon. And then they took a break, and then he went for another five hours, 11-hour. Woo! Preachers love these kind of stories in here. But anyway, um, why is that in there? And this guy falls out of a window, and so, well... The Spirit of God wanted it to be in there because everything out of God's mouth that's put in the Word of God is for our edification, our growing in righteousness, and also there are things we can learn from and practically implement even in our life and church life. So I'm going to try to point some of those out as we go. So I took this narrative passage that seems somewhat disjointed as Paul is definitely on the move. That's why I called the title of the sermon is Missionary on the Move because that's what Paul is doing here. Sometimes he stays a long time. We just saw where he stayed on his third missionary journey in Ephesus for almost three years. That was record setting. He had never stayed in any one city for that close to that period of time. Three years. And then there's this huge transition. Now, verses 1 to 16, he goes into all kinds of different locations and places. Over the, probably over the course of almost a year is what transpires in verses 1 through 16. And it's many different places. And there's a lot of ministry there we don't know anything about. So he's been three years in Ephesus, a year and a half at Corinth, and here he's not staying put for very long anywhere. He is on the move. Why? Because he has a vision. He's being prompted by the Spirit. He has desires and goals. He's committed those to the Lord in prayer. He, he was a planner. He was willing to be spontaneous and obedient to the Lord at any time. He was willing to subject his plans to God's plan at any time. Yet he was a planner. He had a vision. Immediate plans, long-term plans. And we know from the previous passage, one of his long-term goals was to go to Rome. He'd been wanting to go to Rome for years. He even said that in the book of Romans. Years. I've been wanting to come and visit the church in Rome for years. Have been hindered thus far. So that's, that's a goal. Another immediate goal is to go to Jerusalem, to be there by a certain feast day of the Jews. So I want to go to Jerusalem. Then I want to eventually go to Rome. And then after that, I want to go to Spain. And then maybe after that, it was Germany and then eventually to California. But he just didn't have enough time. Paul is on the move. So let's go ahead and look at uh, this passage. And I just broke it up into four chunks. No real logical meaning that I broke it up into four points. Just to help us go through the narrative and get some flow and then glean some practical principles that we can apply to our own life and our own church. Let's go ahead and look at it. I'll just take them. Uh, a section at a time as we see Paul on the move. And the first one there is in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And point number one is resistance in Greece, verses 1 through 3. And this is on the, the tail of what we saw last week. Last week we covered Acts 19, the riot in Ephesus, where Paul had a, a very successful ministry for three years in Ephesus. And there were many people who came to Christ, total pagans, idol worshipers, immoral people. And over the course of three years, a lot of people came to Christ and their life was dramatically changed. And no longer did they want to worship idols. So they weren't going to be making these idols of Artemis or Diana uh, out of silver. And they wanted to get rid of all their idols of her and all their little homemade sanctuaries. 
and they got rid of them. And that was a huge uh, economic business that was thriving in Ephesus of these silversmiths who made amulets and earrings and necklaces and statues and idols and miniature sanctuaries and souvenirs, all of Artemis to make a buck. It's kind of like when you go to a San Francisco 49ers game and they got all the paraphernalia where they're trying to rip you off uh, with all the kinds of stuff you don't need at jacked up high prices. That's probably what was going on here. And so when you had a mass of people over the course of three years getting saved, they didn't buy those things anymore. And it, de- it devastated the economy that was literally thriving and built on the foundation of idolatry and false worship. So we saw that. So there's a riot. So, so there was a riot and these people wanted to kill the apostle Paul and God preserved him, protected him, kept him from that riot. But after three years, then his effectiveness in Ephesus was done after three years. Everybody knew who he was. People had made their decisions. We don't want this Paul, Paul guy here anymore. And so now God says, okay, fine, Paul, it's time to move on. New ministry, some new areas, go back and encourage other churches. And so that's the transition we're at here, where Paul's decided, for now, I am done in Ephesus. I've done what God has called me to do. I've built up a church, established leadership. They are in the hands of God. I will keep these beloved saints in prayer. Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do now? And that's one through three. Let's go ahead and look at it. And it seems like everywhere Paul goes, as he's a church planter, in every culture, it doesn't matter what kind of culture it was, a Roman culture, um, a pagan culture with a Jewish enclave of a synagogue, a, a Greek culture, a Lystrian culture. We've seen all this in the book of Acts. People are the same wherever Paul goes. When they hear the gospel, they either respond to it and believe in Christ, or they respond negatively and reject the truth adamantly, willfully, and many times with resistance directed towards Paul, and sometimes with violence, actually many times. And that happens here. So he's leaving a bunch of violence where he almost dies in Ephesus. Okay, I'll go to a new territory, and the first thing Paul runs into is more resistance to the gospel, which typifies biblical ministry. If you are faithful and committed and tireless in doing biblical ministry for Jesus, saying things like Jesus Christ is God Almighty in the flesh. Jesus is the only way into heaven. Jesus is the only one by which you can have your sins forgiven. Jesus is the only one who can allow you to know God when you die. Jesus is the only way for eternal life. Jesus is the only way. He's the only one that speaks truth and his The only truth that he has given to us is in the Bible. So the Bible is the only word of God. People don't like that. That is an exclusive message. Believers like that. People that God saves like that, they're drawn by that truth. But the rest of the world, they reject that message. They hate. But that was Paul's message. He was consistent in that message. That's why he was called. He, He was called to preach Christ and him crucified. And wherever he went, God would bless him with some who responded. But inevitably, there was resistance. So there's resistance in Greece. Let's go ahead and look at it. You just take note as I go through just some of the the things that uh, are here, actually, that you won't see when you first read it. Uh, So after the riot in Ephesus, verse 1, and after the uproar had ceased, so finally the tumult was over, things settled down, Paul can catch his breath talks to the disciples, his leadership team. He's got new plans. Paul sent for the disciples of Ephesus. So they have a big church meeting, maybe a big fellowship meal. 
And when he had exhorted them, parakales, parakaluo, uh, encourage, that means a lot of things. He encouraged them, but it, it was spoken, the spoken word. He spoke to them. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. He taught them at length, all the saints in Ephesus. And so he exhorted them and taken his leave of them. And he's telling them, I'm, I'm leaving Ephesus now. God has new ministry for me to do. It's been wonderful. It's been absolutely blessed. You are my spiritual family. I have been here for three years. We have grown together. I have great love and affection for you, but now I have to go. This was very sad. Goodbye. And so he departed from Ephesus to go to Macedonia. Well, when you think Macedonia, you can actually write in there Philippi. He's already been there. He went there. He planted a church. Remember Lydia? The church met in her home. There wasn't a synagogue when he got there. A bunch of people got saved. And then he got arrested, beat up, thrown in prison. That's Philippi. Then they kicked him out of town. (laughs) He's going back to encourage the saints in Philippi. Macedonia. So he decided, you know what? I need to go back into Macedonia. I need to encourage those churches up there, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea. And one of the things he was doing there, a purpose to do there in, in Macedonia or Philippi, was to tell them, you know what? Your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, some of which you've never met in your life, down in Jerusalem, in Judea, uh, there's a famine. They're under persecution. They are under duress. Some of them are starving. They need money. They don't. They need help. They need food. And Paul was for over a year planning a collection from all these other churches that he just planted, that they would contribute, and he would bring all that money and collection and offerings down to the church at Jerusalem, the mother church, to meet the needs of the saints there. So it was a relief effort spearheaded by Paul. That's one of the reasons, main reason, why he's going to Macedonia to Philippi. He'd been communicating with the Philippians. Can you give? And they did. They responded amazingly. They were incredibly generous givers, these people in Philippi. So when Paul goes there, he's going to, uh, him and his partners, they're going to be collecting money. They're going to eventually take down to Jerusalem. So that's one of the things he's doing. Uh, so Paul leaves Ephesus. Now, imagine on your map, he's going north along the coast. He stops at a city called Troas. That's not in here, but it's in an, one of Paul's epistles where he was supposed to go to Troas And in Troas, as he's going to Philippi, he was supposed to meet Titus and rendezvous there. Because earlier he had sent Titus to Corinth where there was major problems. And there were a lot of people there talking bad about Paul and preferred Peter and Apollos over Paul and were complaining and gossiping about Paul, their founding pastor. And Paul wrote them a letter of rebuke. And he's now he's kind of nervous. Boy, I hope they receive my letter well. Oh, I'm going to send Titus and find out. And so he's supposed to. So Titus goes down to Corinth, gets a report, checks out the church, comes back to Troas, and he's supposed to meet Paul in Troas at this time, right here, to get a report. Well, Paul gets to Troas, and he says Titus wasn't there. He had an opportunity to minister in Troas, but he couldn't. He just he couldn't rest. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't think. He was under duress, physically and emotionally and spiritually. So he cut his time short in Troas and said, I, I got to find Titus. And so he goes to Macedonia, he goes to Philippi, and that's the end of verse 1. All that happened. We know this from all of Paul's 13 other epistles. Imagine the book of Acts and Paul's 13 epistles like a massive jigsaw puzzle, maybe a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle with very small pieces. 
And those of you who do jigsaw puzzles, you want to put the whole thing together and you want every last piece. There is nothing more frustrating than when you get almost done with the puzzle and the last, there's a piece missing. I've put 4,999 pieces and I can't believe I can't find the last piece. But every verse, every event that's meant is like this masterpiece of a jigsaw puzzle trying to figure out the ministry of the Apostle Paul, his 13 epistles, all that detail coupled with the book of Acts, and you're just trying to put this all together. And that's, that's how we come up with all this data. How do you know that he was in Troas at this time? Because his other epistles tell us that. Very important. Well, Titus isn't there. He's distressed. Okay, fine, I'm going to Philippi. I've got to find Titus. So in Macedon, so he gets to Macedonia. He gets to Philippi. He's in Philippi. Praise God. He finally meets up with Titus, and praise God, Titus has good news. Paul, you know what? They still love you. They were actually humbled, and they accepted your letter. And they, they want to talk to you. They want to meet you. They still love you. They still see you as their apostle and their pastor. And he was so relieved. We know this from his epistles. And he stayed there in Philippi for a while. He stayed there in Philippi long enough to do the following. This is pretty significant. The end of verse one in Macedonia. What did he do there? He wrote second Corinthians. That's huge. He wrote second Corinthians around 57 AD from Philippi right there at the end of verse one. What else did he do? Um, he wrote that. Oh, yeah. And then he uh, and he collected money for the saints down in Jerusalem. This is huge. And he's assembling his team to bring the relief effort. Going on to verse two. What else did he do there in Greece? Uh, so he goes to Macedonia. That's kind of up north uh, of Greece. And then now he's going to go down into Greece proper and southern Greece. Verse two. And when he had gone through those districts, those districts there in Macedonia, what does that mean? When he'd gone through there to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, oh, way up north going towards Italy, where Illyricum I told you about, Al- Albania, probably to preach, evangelize, maybe plant a church real quick there. I got 10 days, I'll plant a church. Boom. Did that. Then in verse 2, and when he had gone through those districts, that's what I'm talking about, the cities I just mentioned, and had given them much exhortation. He had spoken many words to all these churches and all the saints, encouraging them uh, to grow and also to give to this collection. Then finally he goes down into Greece and no doubt went to Athens again where there was probably a little church there. But mostly when it says at the end of verse 2, he came to Greece, that means Corinth. And in Corinth he was there for three months. And he had a a good reception. That was kind of, he wasn't sure about that. So he's going to spend three months in Corinth ministering there. And while he's ministering, this is huge. What did he do in 58 AD here in Corinth at the end of verse 2? He wrote the book of Romans. Amazing. And Romans was already an established church. Paul had never been there. We don't know how it got started. Maybe saints from Pentecost. But he penned that masterpiece, Romans. And we know that Paul had... Uh, many times he had an assistant, literally, he would dictate and they, he had an assistant who would write the letter for him for a lot of different reasons. Um, one was for Paul, he couldn't see well. He, he had maybe malaria or an eye problem. That may have hindered him. And so many times he would use a secretary to write. So we know that Romans was actually dictated to one of his assistants named Tertius. Tertius means three or the third. Who was Tertius? Probably a slave who had been saved and working with Paul. How do we know he's a slave? Because in that time, they tell us, in the Roman culture, uh, slaves who had children didn't name their children typically. They would just name them by number. You're number one, you're number two, you're number three, you're number four. And Tertius means three. So Tertius was probably the third. Child born, no name, that's his name. Number three. Hey, number three, get over here. 
because he came from a slave family. So Tertius the slave, probably, was Paul's secretary. It's kind of interesting because right here in the next verse, it mentions another companion of Paul who got saved, and his name was Secundus. What is, you know what that means? Number two, another child of a slave. Hey, you're number two. Maybe Tertius and Secundus were brothers. We don't know. But probably slave number two and slave number three. My, my mom had ten children. And I'm not kidding. Many times she called me number 10 because I was the 10th one born. I didn't understand the nuances at the time. I do now. Wait, is that? I always thought that was a compliment. Well, no, I'll wait. Wait, whoa. So here's Secundus, number two. Tertius, number three, which is awesome because that's what Christianity does. It doesn't care if you're a slave or you own a million dollars. We just want you to hear about Jesus, have your sins forgiven, get adopted in the family of God, and become a child of the king. Isn't that awesome? A child of the king. Liberated. So uh, he goes, So he's in Corinth. He's with these saints trying to work things out. Very complicated church. Verse 3. And, then, and there he spent three months. And then he had a plan. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. And when a plot was formed against him by who? The Jews. So the Jews in the synagogue, very resistant to Paul. They know who he was. They had to deal with Paul for a year and a half. They, they hated his guts by this time. They tried to kill him once already. And that, that guy has the gall to come back into our city. Seriously? And we understand from history, apparently, that once a year there was a ship that would take Jews from that area over there in Europe, and it would go over to Palestine once a year. And this was the time where that ship was destined to go from Corinth or a harbor close by to Palestine, which would fulfill Paul's goal because he wanted to go to Jerusalem for the feast but also bring this relief money. So Paul thinks, okay, I put three uh, months in here at Corinth. Now I'm going to take all this money and my, my partner's with me, and we're just going to sail straight 1,100 miles, we're going to sail straight 1,100 miles to Jerusalem and get there on time. And there was a designated ship to take Jews to do that. And Paul was a Jew, even though he was a Christian. So he was a candidate, probably had his ticket ready to go, and he's going to get... But then he hears, oh, wait a minute, there is a plan plotted against him by Jews who hate him in that city, and they are going to kill Paul. Paul catches wind of this plan. God exposed the plan, and Paul realizes, wow, if I get on that ship, once we get off the harbor into the water... These people are going to throw me over the ship to die like they tried to do with uh, Jonah. And Paul knew it was not his time. There's a time to run and there's a time not to run. This was a time to run, run away from trouble, and he did. So he hears about the plot. Jews were trying to kill him. And he was going to go to Syria uh, first, Antioch, his home church, then down to Jerusalem. So then when he heard about the plot, he determined, okay, man, I can't go through on that ship and I can't go through the sea. I'm going to get killed. So you know what? I'm going to go back around. I'm going to go mostly on land, back through the, go up north through Greece, through the Macedonian churches, back through Philippi, back through Troas, where there was an open door of ministry for me there that I didn't take advantage of the first time because I was so worried about Titus. And then from there, uh, maybe greet the church at Ephesus again, which he did. And then, then from there, I'll go back to Antioch, my home church missions conference, and then down to Jerusalem and relieve the saints. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Change of plans, sensitive to the Spirit of God, but there is resistance in Greece. So I'm going to go back up north. Let's go into point number two. Uh, So he needs to reorganize. Um, 
And that's point number two in Philippi. Regrouping. Okay, we got, man, we got a change of plans. Um, we got to seek God's spirit. We've got to pray. Here's what we'll do. So he comes up with plan B. God honored plan B. That's verses four through six. Verse four. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea. So he's got this team. We're going to count at least nine men who are accompanying Paul on this return trip back home. Nine. Remember, he came with very few, as far as we know, on journey number three. And as he goes, he's planting churches. And all the while, he's picking up disciples who want to go with him that he wants to train along the way. Paul was uh, committed to training younger men for ministry. He loved fellowship and partnership and companionship. So he would just pick up believers along the way. And so his team is growing. He's like a traveling seminary, Paul was. That's what he's got here. He's got nine students in his seminary who are with him. They're going to go with him all the way. And they're going to rendezvous down in Jerusalem. And all, all of these men, you've got eight or nine men. Why so many? And you're going to see that they're also from different churches, different regions, different uh, countries. So they're representing their churches with this money, which is a good principle. You've got a church in Philippi. Okay, here's all this money we gave you. Who's, who's taking it for us? They gave it to somebody they knew and trusted, somebody from Philippi. Same thing down in Corinth. Same thing in Achaia where they collected a bunch of money. Same thing in uh, Berea. They were giving money to trusted men of God along with Paul, an entire team. So they knew that Paul was going to be a good steward with their finances and how he spent it. This was God's money. And Paul himself, he says very clearly in Corinthians, he did not want to be having this money by himself. He didn't trust himself. He wanted to be above reproach. And that's how God's people need to handle God's money when they distribute it. Churches and pastors have been ripping the church off in terms of finances for 2,000 years. It just happens. And Paul wanted to guard against this. And so this is part of his missionary team to ensure that they're doing this, delivering this, collecting this money with integrity and delivering this money with integrity. And here are some of them. And they're listed by name. Sopater of Berea. I mean, some of these guys we never hear of again. It's like, why are why is it so tedious? Why is Luke listing all these names? Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus. I mean, do we really need to know that? Why are you doing that, Luke? Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby. Uh, Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Why so specifics? Why all the details? Why so? A lot of reasons. This tells us that there is firsthand testimony. This is real history. You can rely on this. And also, uh, they're letting us know a diversity of men from a diversity of churches and regions and countries, and that's the accountability that was involved in the way this money was handled. These people are accountable now by name. I counted up about eight or nine, almost ten different men who were on this trip going back to Jerusalem to take all the money, and they represent different regions. And so from the Macedonia churches was Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Luke. From the Galatian churches was Gaius and Timothy. From the Asian churches was Tychicus and Trophimus. From the Achaia churches was Titus and two others mentioned in an epistle. And Paul and a couple others from the church at Corinth. That's great accountability. Verse 5. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Transition to number 5. Notice the pronoun we. Luke joins again the team. Luke has been missing since Philippi previously. 
maybe three years. Where's Luke been? Every time Luke meets up with Paul, it's in Philippi. So some think that that's where Luke lived. That's where his headquarters was, his medical center or his practice. That was headquarters for Luke. And in verse 5, it says, But these had gone ahead, and we were waiting... Uh, and they were waiting for us at Troas. So Luke and Paul now sends the team ahead. And this was just an incredible blessing for Luke to join up with Paul because he needed a doctor. He needed a brother in the Lord. He needed a physical medical doctor this time. He had been pummeled and beaten almost to death. Who knows if he could even walk hardly. We know he had malaria probably at some point. Uh, And he mentions in Corinthians of how sick he was. He also mentions in Corinthians, he was very depressed. Can you imagine? Did you know the Apostle Paul got depressed? I'm talking emotionally, psychologically depressed. Very, very low. Very discouraged. He said he despaired even of life itself. He tells me, you know what? He's a human. I can identify with that guy. The difference between Paul and most of us, because we probably all are subjected to different levels of depression here and there. Even though Paul was depressed, particularly at Troas, going into Philippi, you know what he kept doing? He didn't lay in bed all day in misery. He just kept going. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm I'm discouraged of life itself. You know what? I need to be obedient to God. I'm going to evangelize. I'm going to write the book of Philippians. I'm going to tell those people how much I love them. So he just kept doing ministry. That's one way. That's a good model good encouraging word for us you're in a bout of depression you're in the valley of depression but you are a true christian one thing you can do you know what just keep plugging away become active get out of bed call somebody on the phone somebody you love somebody that's a believer someone that's going to encourage you somebody that needs encouragement somebody in life that has it worse than you right now and you know that and paul was an example of that it was awesome but here's Luke. Luke contend to him. And Luke did. Verse 6. And then Luke goes on. Now Luke's giving first-hand testimony. The, the, the book of Acts is true history. True, It is reliable. Eyewitness. Luke says, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. This is probably around April, around Easter season either 57 A.D. or 58 A.D., around Easter time. And we came, so they celebrated the unleavened bread feast in Philippi, and then they came to his leadership team in Troas, which was on the coast just above Ephesus. They're in Asia Minor. They came within five days, and there they stayed in Troas for seven days. Regrouping. New plans, committed to the Lord. So let's go on to point number three. So after spending some time in Philippi, regrouping new plans, then they land in Troas. That's 7 through 12. And that's resurrection, resurrection in Troas. This is an amazing story. Let's look at it. So here's Paul and Luke. They arrive in Troas. They greet all the brothers. They're happy to see each other. Uh, wow, okay, you know what? I came through Troas. I wasn't able to spend time with the saints. And now, you know what? We got some time. Let's spend a week here. Let's, let's be with these saints. Let's encourage them. Let's teach the word. And so Paul did. And so on the first day of the week, that's huge. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, you know what? That, that's Sunday. We know from Corinthians. We know from the book of Revelation. 
We know from the Gospel of John at the end of the Gospel when Jesus rose from the dead. We know from this passage right here that Christians, when the church began, the apostles began a new habit, tradition, pattern. And that was they weren't going to celebrate the Saturday Sabbath anymore according to the Mosaic law because Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law. But instead, they were going to be meeting with God's people regularly on Resurrection Sunday. The Lord's Day it became known as. It was the first day of the week on Sunday. So Jesus rose from the dead around 30 A.D. So here it is 25 years later. And that practice had been established so that everywhere Paul went, he probably made certain that, you know what, we can gather any time Bible study throughout the week. But God's people collectively, corporately, we are going to honor Sunday as the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we are going to call it the Lord's Day. So Sunday is not the Sabbath. Do not be confused by that. That's in the Old Testament. That was in Moses' laws. And, and Christians today, people ask, but it's a great question because it's really confusing. Wait, uh, are we supposed to be celebrating the Sabbath? And sometimes... When Christians say that, they mean Sunday. They mean Sunday's the Sabbath, a day of rest is how they see it. But technically, the Sabbath was Saturday in terms of the one-week period, and you were obligated by the Mosaic Law to celebrate, according to the prescribed method in the Mosaic Law, the Saturday as the Sabbath. If you deviated from it, if you did illegitimate work, you were to be stoned to death. Well, aren't we supposed to be worshiping on the Sabbath? I've been asked by Christians over the years. Well, so you mean Saturday? No, Sunday. The Sabbath, aren't we supposed to make it? No, it's, it's Saturday's the Sabbath. Oh, okay. Well, aren't we supposed to be worshiping on Saturday? Because that's what the Bible says. Well, yeah, that's the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And if you want to abide by the Mosaic Law, then you can't just pick one law. You've got to go with the other 632 as well. Like getting stoned to death if you blow it on a Saturday. Do you want to do that? Because you need to. Live by the law, die by the law. That's basically what James said in his epistle. And the law, and the, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was like a prophecy, a living metaphor, a picture, a shadow of something greater. Sabbath also means rest, rest. And it was a picture of spiritual rest we would get eternally by believing in Jesus as the Messiah, that when you come to know him personally by virtue of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his calling you to repentance and you believing in him, then you are born again. You become a child of God. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved light. And you're in the family of God and you have forgiveness of sin, past, present and future. That is eternal rest. That is true Sabbath. Do I celebrate Sabbath? I do in that Sabbath means rest. And I have complete rest of my soul eternally only in Jesus Christ, my precious Lord and Savior. And Hebrews 4 says that very thing. It gives us the interpretation of it. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament Sabbath you saw. In Colossians 2, Paul says, Christian, do not let any other Christian or religionist Force a yoke of Old Testament Mosaic law regarding the Sabbath around your neck. Don't let them do it. That's a misunderstanding. So we celebrate the rest we have in the Lord Jesus Christ through his blessed gospel. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He offers forgiveness of sin to those who believe in his gospel. So this is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. This is actually a Sunday night Vespers. I mentioned it earlier. So here they are. They're gathering. By the way, they're gathering probably in a home. 
It's not a small home. It is a very large home. How do I know it's a large home? Because this home is, is three stories high. Which means you have to have a pretty large, solid foundation for the bottom story and the second floor and the third floor. This is a high-rise, massive, probably, mansion. Not every house was a wimpy small house that only fit three people in the living room. We know that 120 saints fit in one room of a house in Acts chapter 1. That, that is a big house, palatial. Same thing here. This is a big house. It's got three stories. They are having their Bible study or Vesper service on the third floor. And it's, it's huge. How do we know that? Because apparently all the believers from Troas were invited to be there. It's huge. How do we know that? Because Luke, who was an eyewitness and was there, he said there were many lit candles there. Lamp, many. If it's a small place, you don't need many. But he purposed to say there were many lit candles there or lamps. And they're burning and they're in this room and there's small little ventilation, but there's a lot of these candles and they're burning oil and that's going into the air and it's sapping all the oxygen in the room. And if this place is packed out, all the people in there are sapping all the oxygen in the room and giving everybody else carbon dioxide, which is good for plants. And that's what's going on in the evening. And by the way, and this is going on for hours because Paul starts his, say, his Sunday night sermon at 6 o'clock and now he's going on and now it's, wait, dude, it's 7.30. He's been preaching for 90 minutes and he's not ready to stop. We're only on point number one out of 14 points. What does Paul think he's doing? And now it's 8.30. He's been preaching for two and a half hours. And now, and some people are starting to, you know, get tired and try to be polite and moving around. And now it's like 9.30. This is unbelievable. Why is Paul preaching so long? Well, it, the text tells us. Because he knew he was leaving tomorrow. He's not going to see these people, man. I'm going to give him one shot. I'm going to give him a six-week sermon and one sermon. Or six-week, yeah. So look what it says. On the first day of the week, Sunday night, they gathered together. We were gathered together, says Luke, eyewitness, together to break bread. We're going to do church. We're going to have communion. This is going to be awesome. We're with the saints. And Paul began talking to them. And he kept talking. And he kept talking, intending to depart the next day. Man, I got a lot, I got a lot to say. And he prolonged his message until when? Midnight. So this could have been a four-hour-plus sermon. It could have been. It was also interactive, trying to keep people awake. Hey, Frida, what did I say? What did I say in the last sentence? Jesus what? No doubt it was interactive, but it was long. It was prolonged. So Paul is, uh, Luke is being very specific here to set up what happened. In verse 8, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. That is probably one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. How do you apply that one? What's the practical application? Why is that there? Well, Luke is there. He's an eyewitness. There were many lamps in the upper room. So that indicates a lot from the context. Like I said, it's probably a huge room and needed many lamps because there's a lot of people there. Uh, lamps, like I said, it's, it's sapping up all the oxygen. Uh, so the atmosphere in that room is changing. There's less oxygen to breathe. Uh, it makes you kind of lightheaded, makes you kind of queasy, it makes you kind of tired, it makes you kind of ready to take a nap. In addition to somebody t preaching for four hours, puts people... Man, people fall asleep within 15 minutes of my sermons. How do I know? Because I can see you. I can see you, and every once in a while you don't know, but I take pictures with my cell phone. And I zoom in later, aha! Anyway. There were many lamps in the upper room. Luke, that's weird. 
verse 9. Well, here's what I'm telling you about the lamps. There was a certain young man. Okay, young man. Neonius is the Greek word. It just means a young man. It could be a, a, tw- a college student for all we know. But later it calls him a lad, pais, P-A-I-S. And that is reserved for sometimes babies. Young kids. Young boy, age 7 to 14. Very specifically used. This is a junior hire. I don't know if there's any junior hires, but this is. You guys told Jason Burgess earlier, you're in today's sermon. Because he's 12 years old. So there was a, let's say a 12-year-old. So there was a 12-year-old with his family at the Bible study in church on the third floor. And it been and Paul had been going on for hours and hours. And there was a lack of oxygen. And so this young boy is about to sleep. And his mom says, go over by the window. and Maybe that will wake you up. So he does. Goes over by the window. Windows didn't necessarily have glass. They were just open holes in the wall. I've, saw, I've seen a lot of these in Africa and India. Just open holes. Sometimes they're actually the size of a door. Some would say the etymology of window as we know it is a shortened form of wind door. Window, wind door. So that's probably what this was. And so here's his name is Eutychus. And so Eutychus, the junior hire, Eutychus, maybe the teenager, uh, he's complaining about how long the sermon is and how hot it is. It's so hot in here. I can't breathe, Mom. How long is Pastor Paul going to go on? Go sit over there. And so he goes over and he sits on the third floor and he's sitting there listening. And on the windowsill. And then he's sinking into a deep sleep. Why? Because Paul just prolonged his message. And so he's trying to stay awake, sinking. And he's his eyes and he's kind of rolling over. And maybe somebody's pushing him here and there. And eventually he just fell sound asleep. And it says he he fell probably backwards out the third story window all the way down, splat onto the ground. That's what it says, the end of verse 9. He fell out of the window from the third floor. Uh, Bible study over, at least interrupted. Can you imagine? Paul's preaching, and some junior hire falls out of the window dead in the middle of Bible study. They haven't had communion yet. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the mother. She probably just, you know, screamed with panic. Oh, my son, he's dead. Absolute mayhem. So Paul being the leader that he is, the prophet that he is, trusting God. Uh, he's still human, though. It's like, oh, my, what happened? And then, But we do know he ran downstairs. This is a major crisis. And immediately he was picked up dead. That's Luke saying that. Luke probably got down there and took his pulse. Paul, he's dead. He's officially dead. But Paul, verse 10. Paul went down and fell upon him, on the young man. That's weird. What's that all about? Well, immediately, if you know the Old Testament, you're thinking, 1 Kings 17, Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha. Prophets of God. Spokespersons for God. Similar stories. Elijah with the widow. She had a, a young boy. And he died. He got sick. And she was brokenhearted. And she kind of got mad at Elijah. You know what? If you hadn't come to our house, my son wouldn't have died. This is she's almost blaming him. And then Elijah got on the boy like that, laid over him and breathed the life of God, and he came back to life. A miracle. Prophet of God, Elijah. Then you go to his protege, Elisha, same thing. Elisha is with uh, a mom and dad and the Shunite woman. And they had a son, and he had he was out in the field, and all of a sudden he started feeling queasy and a headache, and he, he told his parents, my, my head, my head. We don't know if he hit his head 
was having a seizure or what. And he took him home to mom and, and he was dead. And Elisha went to that boy, same thing, and he laid on top of the young boy. And boom, immediately, supernatural life came back, risen from the dead. Paul was a Hebrew rabbi, master of the Old Testament, had kings memorized. These were the two most esteemed prophets because they did more miracles than anyone. Elijah and Elisha. They spoke the word of God with binding authority. So no wonder, verse 10, Paul went down and fell upon. That is exactly what the two great prophets did on the young boy. A lot of these people are Gentiles. Maybe they don't even know what is going on. They don't even know who Elijah and Elisha are. What is he doing? Paul falls on the young boy who is dead, and after embracing him, embraced him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Paul did a miracle. He brought this boy back from the dead. Why is this story even here? I think it's very clear why this story of all stories is here. Paul, at this time in his life, 57 A.D., 58 A.D., his ministry was in crisis because you need to read 2 Corinthians, that very long epistle, to see that. There were false uh, teachers going from city to city, wherever Paul planted a church, bad-mouthing Paul, undermining his ministry, saying he's a false prophet, saying it, he's in it just for the money criticizing him in terms of his physical features, what he taught, the way he spoke, calling him a deceiver and a misleader. And the Corinthians basically turned on him and word got out. Many were questioning the legitimacy of the Apostle Paul. Is he really from God? Yeah, by the way, he wasn't one of the 12 of Jesus, was he? What was he doing during the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth? He wasn't there. He wasn't there to the end. As a matter of fact, I heard he used to persecute the church. He killed Christians. So Paul's credibility is being undermined at this time in his life. He, he's not like Peter, the head apostle. Well, actually, he is like Peter. Who else raised someone from the dead in the book of Acts, Peter? Why? To validate that Peter was a true man of God sent from the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle of the church. You know what? Paul did and can do the same thing. Paul has equal authority with Peter when it comes to apostolic ministry. Paul has the same gifts that Peter had in terms of supernatural sign gifts to validate his ministry through signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. And even bringing someone back from the dead. I talked about resurrections in the Bible. There are very few, very few resurrections in the Bible. Jesus did one with Lazarus. Jesus did one with himself. Elijah and Elisha. Peter did one. And Paul did one. Very few. So why is this story in here? Why did Luke put it in here? Luke knew where Paul was at in his life and in his ministry, probably at the lowest point of his life. Paul needed to be recognized for who he was, the man of God that he was. His credibility needed to be validated. What greater way to validate his ministry than to do a a miracle beyond belief, a miracle that put him on par with Peter and Jesus himself. What Paul spoke in the name of the Lord was true. I think that's one of the main reasons why Luke put it in here. First Corinthians 17, the last verse in that chapter, after Elijah does that miracle and brings that boy from the dead. Remember the, the, the mom who was kind of doubting Elijah's ministry and validity? When Elijah brought her son back to dead, she said, in light of the miracle, she said, I know that you are a man of God and speak God's truth. And I think that was true of Paul. 
So you have pandemonium, panic, he's dead. You've got women crying and screeching. It's midnight. They're being a bad uh, witness to their neighbors with all the commotion. Paul doesn't want Christians to be a bad testimony in the neighborhood. And that's why he says in verse 10, don't be troubled, quiet down. The boy, he's alive, verse 11. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread, so they just go back to communion. Okay, everybody, God just did an amazing miracle. He's alive. Eutychus is alive. Jesus brought him back to life. Praise God. Let's go celebrate. Let's, we were going to celebrate communion. Now we're going to celebrate communion and the resurrection of Eutychus, or at least coming back to life, resuscitated. So they go back up at midnight. Now, what does this do? At midnight, everybody's falling asleep. Everybody's drowsy. And then somebody dies in the middle of church service. And then you go pick them up and they're resurrected from the dead. Now, now what's happened? Everybody's awake now. The adrenaline is through the roof. Now they can't go to sleep. So what do you do if you can't go to sleep at midnight? You have church for another five hours. That's what they did. Look at verse 11. They go back up. They celebrate communion. And then Paul talked with them a long while. Well, how long? Until daybreak, until the sun started coming up at 5 in the morning. And that doesn't mean Paul was preaching the whole time. He talked to them. In other words, they were just celebrating. Man, can you believe it? Look at Eutychus. Is he still okay? Wow, he's still awake. He's not falling asleep anymore. Wow. Uh, did you see the light when you went out? When you were dead, did you see the light? Did you see a tunnel? Did you go? What happened when you died? What? Who knows what they were talking about? But they were celebrating, rejoicing, giving God the glory. He is the giver of life. People were thanking Paul, verse 12, and they took away the boy alive and they were greatly comforted. This was awesome. This was amazing. How encouraging. Number four, uh, reflecting in Miletus. This is kind of a setup for next week. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. Acts, because uh, it's an elders meeting. It's an extended elders meeting, which we have here at GBF. Our elders meetings go like five hours long. Acts twenty seventeen and following is an elders meeting. Um, but this is the setup for it, reflecting in Miletus 13 to 16. So Luke says, okay, after that glorious event, me, we, me and Paul, we went ahead to the ship. We left Troas. We set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For thus he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. So we were going to sail uh, from for Asos, but Paul decided not to get on the boat with Luke and his buddies. And Paul said, you know what, I'm going to walk. I'll meet you guys in Troas in a while, about 20 miles, two-day journey, maybe a, a day for Paul. He's going to walk all by himself. Really? Why? He apparently just needed time alone, talk to God, meditate, pray. So he did. And then Luke sails away. Verse 14. And when he met us at Asos, so they rendezvoused as planned at Asos. We took him on board, and then we came to Mytilene, another port. Verse 15, and sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus. You know, all these ports, who cares? What, why are you doing this, Luke? Like I said, firsthand testimony. This is a historical uh, event, truly happened. Luke knows he's an eyewitness. Truth is validated with the testimony of two or three witnesses in the Bible. And then finally, we landed in Miletus, which is one of the destinations where they're going to have their elders meeting with the elders from Ephesus. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so he's going down. There's Ephesus, big city, was there three years. Man, I know a lot of people in that city. I'm not going to stop there. It would take too long. So I'll go down to the next town, and then we'll call the elders from Ephesus to meet me there so we can have a shorter meeting. Time is limited. I want to get back to Jerusalem, relieve the saints, and be there for the holiday. 
So Paul decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia Minor where Ephesus was, for he was hurrying. He was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The Lord's Day became Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus and also because of the day of Pentecost. That makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus rose from the dead and the church began. What a glorious, glorious reality that every, every time we meet on Sunday as God's gathered people, at a minimum, we're celebrating those two things. The Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead on our behalf and also he began the church as he poured out the spirit of God. And that's a privilege we still are blessed by this day. And thus, in verse 17, what Paul does, from 17 to the rest of the chapter, he gathers his elders together, and pretty much a lot of what he does in his monologue or his discussion with them is he's reflecting, reminiscing on three years of ministry in Ephesus, reminding his elders, you know what, I'm leaving, I'll probably never see your face no more. Uh, you need to take over the baton and leave these churches, these precious churches, the elders of Ephesus. And that's not just, I mean, the, the elders, yeah, of Ephesus. Uh, and there were probably many saints, so they may have had many elders there. And he says, remember my example, I entrust that to you. And we're going to look at that more in detail next week. So with that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Because we have the privilege to thank him for his word and his goodness to us. Father, we do thank you for this day, the Lord's Day. And all that has been a part of it, our Sunday school hour, the teaching that went out, the fellowship we've been able to enjoy, singing songs to you, welcoming new members into our church, and then being reminded of the living word of God, of the history of the early church, the ministry of Paul, the establishment of the Lord's Day for our privilege. God, just many glorious truths. God, we now pray that you go before us with your Holy Spirit that we would live in obedience to you and also giving you all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.